Like most women's health issues, endometriosis is complicated. It can take years to receive a proper diagnosis. We still don't have a really good understanding of the underlying causes and triggers, and conventional medical treatments are surgery or heavy-duty medications. But there's a lot that nutrition and lifestyle can do in terms of symptom reduction. Unfortunately, there are also a lot of myths out there around what diet actually works for endometriosis. So today I'm talking to fertility and endometriosis nutrition expert, Stephanie Velakis, APD, who you may know from Instagram as the dietologist. Steph is a wealth of knowledge around endometriosis and helps her patients achieve improvements in symptoms with simple diet and lifestyle changes. Let's dive in. Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Welcome, Steph. I am so glad you're here to talk with me today. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit, a bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Melissa. Very excited to be here. So my name is Stephanie Velarkis and I am a fertility and endometriosis dietitian and nutritionist. And I'm the founder of the virtual clinic, The Dietologist. And I, you can probably tell from my accent, I'm from Australia, uh, Sydney, but uh, we're very lucky to consult people from all over the world. And our areas of interest span from reproductive health concerns, such as PCOS and endometriosis, all the way through to fertility. And we are lucky to guide most of our clients through pregnancy as well. So yeah, I guess my passion for uh, preconception health is kind of what kick-started off my whole career and practice. And yeah, I guess my own um, personal experiences with um, hormones came into play as well, but that was a little bit further further along. But I'm sure we'll I'm sure we'll chat about that in this um, episode as well. Yeah, and for my my audience is mostly US. We do have some mm. Australian listeners as well, yeah. but um, who may not know, but you're an 
a accredited practicing dietitian is correct. the credential there, correct? And that's, you know, the equivalent to a registered dietitian in the U.S. Um, yes. Similar, but not quite exactly the same pathway. I know um, for, for you all, the clinical is sort of um, within your academic program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So to become an accredited practicing dietitian in Australia, you either need a four-year undergrad degree or a three-year undergrad with a two-year master's. So I, I did the master's pathway. So it's five years of university education, um, includes which includes on like your internship year, which is what you guys call it, but we call it placement. Um, so that's inclusive of supervision and training. And then you do one year of supervised practice afterwards as yeah. well. So, yeah, it's a long time <laughs> as yeah. it is for all of us. I, I actually mentor a student who's in Australia. So I have gained a little bit more insight into what that pathway looks like. And I often um, receive requests and questions about, you know, do I know someone like me mm-hmm. in you know, insert XYZ country. And most Mm. countries, I really don't, but I'm very fortunate Mm. in Australia, I'm able to send people your way. Um, You you know, I have have some Canadian friends as well, but um, generally I, you know, because of my licensure, I'm only able to Mm. work in the US other than, you know, my online courses, but always great to have, you know, someone doing comparable work in a country where I, I can't work with people individually. Yeah. So yeah, thank absolutely. you. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, and sometimes I can't see my, the clients in the States and Canada because times, <laughs> time zones sometimes don't work. <laughs> yeah. Canada actually has stricter licensing than the U S really. Mm. Um, it's, it's definitely, Difficult. So always good if I have someone, you know, trusted that I can refer to in those areas. I think it's really interesting that one of the things that drove you to get into fertility and preconception Mm -hmm. nutrition was working with children. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And you, you must have seen, oh, I can impact their health even more if I work with them before they're even conceived. (laughs) Can you, yes. can you talk, yes. talk, talk about that? Like what drove you to, you know, really make the switch to working more with, with prenatal and preconception care? Yeah, I think the idea was really seeded in my university education. I was very interested in um, microbiology in my science degree. So Um, That's the study of bacteria and small things, really. Um, Not quite viruses, although that would have been really useful, Um, but (laughs) more so bacteria. And I think the idea of, um, at that time, mode of birth and and how the gut microbiome was being started off was just starting to come to light in the research and we're starting to learn about it at university. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. Like, you're telling me, like, this is not even in a human's control, like a a baby's control, how they're born is how they're born. And that can change their course of health for their life. That's, that's wild. So I think that idea was seeded. um, And I was very interested in understanding and preventing 
long-term health conditions. I didn't want to see people when they were in their later life struggling with a variety of chronic conditions. So I thought, okay, what's early? Children. Okay, so I started working in paediatrics, um, which I which I adored, but I started to notice that a lot of the issues that I was seeing in kids and I saw extreme picky eaters, allergies, intolerances, all sorts of things, um, a lot of those I those issues when I probed the parents and took good histories I started to see things were tracking back into pregnancy things were tracking into preconception Um, things were happening in this time in this window that I felt were not a coincidence as to what was then happening to bub or baby or child and so I just thought goodness like I need to dive into this preconception conception health piece a little more and that's when I read that Lancet series it's uh, one of the hallmarks of kind of preconception health and nutrition and it was a series of three papers and it talked about um, the importance of starting to intervene earlier and earlier when it comes to preconception health and the impacts that's having on not just the pregnancy outcome or the ability to conceive, which is obviously the immediate goal, but the child's health in 10 years' time or adult health. And we know this from things like the Dutch famine study and, and all sorts of other, I guess, uh, world events that have impacted health. And then we've seen the impacts, you know, 50-plus years later. So, yeah, that's kind of what kicked it all off. And then I, yeah, it was kind of backwards, right? <laughs> I went kind of the reverse way in. Um, I know a lot of people go from fertility and kind of follow people out into pregnancy, postpartum and and children's health, but I actually went backwards. So I think it gave me a lot of perspective and, yeah, I'm very grateful to, I feel settled in this uh, arena now for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, as someone who's very concerned with identifying root causes and the, mm. you know, those upstream root causes that are causing the symptoms that we're seeing. It's a very similar approach. It's, you know, some of these things that happen during pregnancy, not only, you know, microbiome and being born via C-section or being formula mm. fed versus breastfed, which again, these mm. impact our health, but we didn't have any say over what mm-hmm. happened. Um, but in addition to the microbiome, there's epigenetic changes and mom's health status. And now even more and more research coming out on dad's health status prior to pregnancy actually affects the child years and years down the road and into their adulthood even. So it makes a lot of sense to, you know, sort of work with the parents to impact the health of the child. Yeah, absolutely. And that was that final piece in that Lancet series was preconception health should become a public health priority and we should be intervening as young as adolescence and early adulthood because the implications are that the next generation and potentially even the generation after that, the next two generations, because at around 20 weeks gestation, um, female fetuses are going to have about have some eggs starting to to grow um so that's half of your future grandchildren that you're kind of carrying hashtag no pressure but um there are intergenerational effects and we're talking serious health concerns that most people would like to avoid for themselves and certainly for their children allergies 
uh, asthma, autoimmune diseases, heart disease, diabetes. Um, so a variety of health concerns. And there's no guarantee. You know, those are all complex health conditions. But if we can take some good steps to implementing some simple strategies to help set you up preconception, both mother and father, then let's do that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know you also do a lot of work with PCOS and mm-hmm. we, we do know that, you know, one of the potential triggers for PCOS is the hormonal environment in the mother during pregnancy, mm-hmm. you know, certain hormones being high or insulin being high could perhaps be a trigger for that child mm-hmm. developing PCOS. So obviously if we, if we want to eliminate that or reduce those numbers, that's one approach that's valid. And, you know, it absolutely affects the, the health of society as a whole by, addressing preconception nutrition. So very important work that you're doing. Thank you. I know one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on was to talk about endometriosis, which is obviously one of the more common issues that brings someone to work with a fertility dietitian. Um, there, but it turned out that there ended up being a personal connection for you there too, wasn't Mm -hmm. there? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So after my pediatric stint, I started in preconception and fertility nutrition after some training and naturally whenever you see people trying to conceive, there's going to, especially at the time that I started consulting where there wasn't this kind of preventative mindset around, Oh, I just want to make sure all the boxes are being ticked so I can feel confident moving forward. We're in that phase now, which is lovely. But at the time it was, I'm having problems, I'm having problems, or I might have a problem, so I need to get some help. So the the key concerns were PCOS, endometriosis, thyroid concerns, and hypothalamic amenorrhea. If I was to categorise the top four things that I was seeing all the time, they were those. And, yeah, absolutely, I I took a very keen interest in endometriosis because it was just so mysterious. We still didn't know what causes it and we still don't um there's no cure it just it felt so strange um in terms of the way it worked as a disease I just the the physiology of it I was just like I'm trying to understand you and you were so complex um but yeah I I recall one day specifically and when I was consulting face to face and I'd seen so many clients back to back who had told me the only reason they got diagnosed with endometriosis was because it was either by accident or due to delays conceiving and their symptom profile. I said, well, what were your symptoms before that? Like what kind of hinted? They're like, honestly, Steph, I was just tired, just fatigue. You know, I didn't even really have the painful periods that I know that you quote unquote meant to have with endometriosis and uh, you know, if I wasn't trying to conceive, who knows how long it would have taken me to get a diagnosis. And I even saw lots of people kind of post their their um, child rearing years, so to speak, that, that gave me that reflective aspect. And it was the end of that day that I really reflected on what was going on with my own health. I'd been through multiple doctors and specialties and irritable bowel syndrome diagnoses and all sorts of things. 
and I just put my foot down. I was like, my gut instinct has been for a long time. Something else is going wrong. Now I know what endometriosis is and I can understand its uniqueness of presentation because I didn't have very painful periods either or heavy or any of those things. And I just thought, I I just can't settle. I need to just go and, and work this out. So, yeah, I was very, very lucky to have a surgeon across the hallway, walked, walked into his office and I had a few other things going on gynecologically and I just said to him at the end of the consult, I said, I think I have endometriosis, this is why, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And he was like, great, when are you available for a laparoscopy surgery, we'll go. And, yeah, I, I know that's not most people's journey um, and certainly I have my clients to thank for helping me get diagnosed as early as I did. I ended up having stage two endometriosis without much impact on my physical uh, structure of my reproductive organs, but it settled most of my symptoms once it was removed, including my quote-unquote irritable bowel syndrome and associated food intolerances. So yeah, I, at that point, I was already really interested in endometriosis as a practitioner, but naturally, whenever something happens to you, it, it kind of makes you a bit more invested. And I, I became extremely frustrated um, by, I guess, the lack of options that were available for people who were living in more, much more severe pain than I was. Um, and the fact that many healthcare providers were just writing off diet, that's not going to do anything, you need medication. And absolutely, a lot of people need medication, and that is A-OK. -okay. I'm not, I'm not anti-medication, anti but sometimes that isn't the right option for people. And they, we all eat all day, every day, I hope. So we want to try to make better choices if we can, if it even just helps and most of my people that see me are just like, Steph, even if it helps 5%, I'll be happy. You know, they're not, they're not looking for a miracle. They know, they, they understand the complexity of, of it and they know it's not, you know, one in, one out and everything will be right in the world again when it comes to their symptoms. So, you know, I think just giving people that option and, and getting better information out there about it and just raising the profile of diet and not framing it as this miracle cure snake oil business, but really framing it as there is some evidence. This is what it can do. It's not going to be for everybody and be a universal option, uh, universal, you know, cure all for you. But, you know, here are some simple things that you can do to help yourself and why not? Yeah, you brought up, um, one of the points that makes endometriosis such a, a complex beast to deal with, which is currently it's diagnosed through surgery. So that I think is one of the things that really delays um, and prevents uh, women with the condition from being diagnosed because, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's invasive. It's an invasive surgery. And mm -hmm. so it's, you know, we, we want to limit unnecessary surgeries, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. I know that there was talk, there was some talk for a while about a blood test marker coming out. Um, I remember seeing it a couple of years ago. I haven't seen anything mm -hmm. about it since. Um, I don't know if the, the trials on that kind of stalled or what, but 
right now, yeah. still surgery is the only way to diagnose endometriosis. It's not something mm-hmm. you can see on an ultrasound or test for via, via blood. Um, mm-hmm. And like you said, there are a lot of women who have it and don't have those sort of hallmark symptoms of painful, heavy periods. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, there's a lot of, there's so many factors that goes into why it takes in Australia, we've gone from, I think a seven to 12 year average roughly of time from symptom onset to diagnosis to about six to seven years, which people like, wow, amazing. It is amazing, but also like six and seven years of suffering is is still really long time. And that's an average as some people that have been living with this disease for 20, 25 years and um, never get any answers. And absolutely. I think the fact that diagnosis is surgical um, where they do some small cuts and insert a camera um, and cut out the endometriosis and send it off to pathology that is the gold standard of diagnosis. There are other ways that you can receive a, a quote-unquote clinical diagnosis or a suspected endometriosis diagnosis um, so that you, we can have a strong level of suspicion going in and then confirm with the surgery. And for some people, for whatever reason, they choose not to have surgery and work on the assumption that they have it. And that's okay too. If that's, that aligns with your values and some people are like, no, everyone should be going for surgery. If, that, if that's not relevant to that person's life and that's their choice and they've made an informed decision, I'm not here to argue with them. I'm here to help them with their symptoms. So it, it, it really is that. I think it's also there is so much overlap with so many other conditions. I, I had misdiagnosis of Crohn's disease. I had misdiagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. Um, I had an ulcer in my bowel. Um, what else did I had? I had um, a cervical ectropion, um, which although some of those things were there, but once I resolved, it didn't resolve the whole symptom profile, profile which means something really underneath was happening. So there's lots of, of misdiagnosis of endometriosis and and that can be very tricky because, I mean, as a doctor, if somebody comes into your office and says, I'm, I'm tired, mm-hmm. that could be a million different things and your mind isn't naturally going to jump to endometriosis unless you're really looking at a whole symptom profile. There are some blood tests, but they're all very hit and miss. So, for example, in my personal story, I did every blood test and every scan and everything looked completely normal and that is a common story there are some people where they're at you know a a different level of disease or the location of the disease can be picked up so if you have large endometriomas or cysts on the ovaries different to polycystic ovary syndrome um if you have large cysts on the ovaries sometimes that can be picked up with a pelvic ultrasound and there are sonographers who have additional training who do deep infiltrating endometriosis scans again for somebody like myself, the stage of disease, it doesn't, it, it's never going to show up. So it, it's a hit and a miss. It's going to pick it up if it's more further along in some instances. But I think the thing about endometriosis is, is that the stage of the disease, so stages one through four, does not correlate to the symptom profile. There is people that have a very small amount of endometriosis living inside their pelvic region, it is removed and they are in constant agony. And there's people who have 
often what's called frozen pelvis where all the anatomical structures of the uterus, the ovaries, the bowel, the bladder, the ligaments are stuck and, and not mobile like they should be. And they could be walking around not having a clue that they have any symptoms and they're going to the chiropractor to get their back cracked because they have chronic low back pain and it turns out that was an endometrioma or in patches of endometriosis pushing on a ligament so it's so heterogeneous in the way that it presents i mean some of the common symptoms like we said heavy painful periods painful ovulation pain with sex pain with bowel uh, bowel motions pain with urination but not necessarily always just pain. There's sometimes just pressure or weird. Like I could never describe the changes that I had had to my bladder until I had the surgery. And I was like, oh, that's so different now. I didn't realize that that was abnormal. I wouldn't say it's pain with urination, but it, it was something else. I couldn't describe it. Um, and other things like constipation, diarrhea, bloating, um, endo belly, as we call it, is very common. And it is a chronic inflammatory condition and, and it is by nature we, we understand that there's some hormonal link. We don't think it's a hormonally driven, but there's a hormonal link, an estrogen link, and also an immune system link as well. And I think the blood test that you're referring to, Melissa, that they were trying to investigate may have been an antibody or an autoantibody because they're starting to see that potentially people with endometriosis more likely to be diagnosed with other autoimmune diseases such as celiac disease and rheumatoid arthritis and inflammatory bowel disease, just to name a few. But when we haven't found one that is cover all again. And I think that's going to be the tricky thing about endometriosis is you can pick up an inflammatory marker, but some people don't have that one high. You can pick up a cancer antigen one, two, five, but that's non-specific and some people aren't going to be high. And it's going to be the same thing with the antibody as well. I suspect um, another thing that they're looking at is looking at stool analysis for uh, diagnosis of endometriosis because they're showing that there's a change in the gut microbiome in people with endo versus those without. So I, th I think it might be a blood test, might be a stool test. Um, I mean, that would be amazing no, if so we could screen people. Oh. So really it is very similar to PCOS in that people – present with it differently. I mean, the growths can mm. happen really anywhere. Um, I also have had the experience of having a patient whose primary symptom was um, hip and lower leg and back pain. Mm. Um, I've also heard people, it can grow as high as the diaphragm and start to affect breathing and things mm -hmm. like that. So it really it depends on where it is, how, what grade of the disease it is. And, mm. you know, different people have different symptoms as well. It's almost like a syndrome, um, similar yeah. to PCOS in that way, where it's kind of a collection of things. And we also, you know, we know there are multiple drivers, but they all seem to work in tandem. So mm it's complicated, like most things in women's health, right? It's, it's complicated. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what, how does endometriosis impact fertility? You had mentioned that some of your clients really only discover that they have endometriosis when they're struggling to conceive. So what are some of the ways that endo impacts fertility? Yeah, I think the most important thing to frame it up this conversation is not 
and everybody that has endometriosis is automatically going to have an issue conceiving. It's not absolute, just, just the same as PCOS and many other reproductive health concerns where we're almost given the label of, you know, good luck on, on trying for a baby. It might be hard or it will be hard. Um, no one can really say that with much certainty except a very few circumstances. So I, I would say that there's a few different modalities in which endometriosis can impact fertility, but it isn't going to be for everyone. 30 to 50% is the rough statistic of people that are going into trying to conceive known endometriosis that may have an issue. And there is about a 25 to 50% rate amongst the female factor of the infertility population. Um, so a lot of people don't get properly screened until they're one to two years into IVF, for example, before then this is being investigated, which in my opinion is probably a little bit too long. Um, I think with something as common as endometriosis, we should have a stronger degree of suspicion in an infertility population off the bat. But anyway, that's just my thoughts. So there are um, certainly a few different ways. Number one is that inflammation in the, in the pelvic region and the peritoneal fluid, which is that fluid that kind of, it's like the soup that that kind of the stock that floats all the veggies around. It's that that fluid in the pelvic region. I know I love an analogy. If you're a client, you already know. This <laughs> chef comes up with some some crazy analogies, um, but that fluid has has more in inflammatory protein cytokines, etc., and that can have an impact on the egg. As it's maturing, it can impact the egg quality negatively. So that's one way that it can affect um, fertility. There's also some indication that that inflammation can actually negatively impact the sperm before it even gets to the egg. So it's, it's, it's also doing that. Um, there's the impact that it can have on the embryo itself as it's forming. And then there's also a change in the, the endometrial uh, receptivity, so implantation. There's also some indication that there is um, more likely to be a, a, um, an imbalance, I guess is, I hate using the word balance, um, some issue in the estrogen progesterone ratio in the luteal phase of people with endometriosis. So typically we're seeing more, too much estrogen, not enough progesterone. It's not a universal truth, but sometimes that can be an issue. So length of luteal phase being a little short, um, cycles being a little short. It seems subtle to have a 25-day cycle, but if your luteal phase is only seven or eight days, it might not be long enough. So there's lots of factors at play, and that's just one kind of class of things. We could talk about immune dysfunction and all sorts of other things. They're the main kind of drivers and some of those can be overcome with fertility treatments and interventions and others uh, we find some clients are increasingly you know no matter the interventions it can become increasingly challenging to get to the bottom of what's going on yeah I think well, you know the hmm. bottom the bottom line is really an inflammatory environment is not friendly to no. anything let alone um conception of a healthy baby, um, but that inflammation is something that diet and lifestyle can play a huge role in managing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why 
I saw that there was, well, why are we talking about all these other inflammatory conditions and looking at diet, but we're not thinking about it for endometriosis. And yeah, there's, there's certainly a lot of different um, systems at play um, when it comes to endometriosis, immune system being one, nervous system being another, um, obviously reproductive organs and the hormones that go along with it. Um, but there's also many people just don't, don't come to me just with endometriosis when it comes to their fertility story. And I think as well, that would be a key message if you were listening to this and you think you have endometriosis or, um, or you do have endometriosis and you are thinking about trying to conceive or you're actively trying to conceive. Just because you've received that diagnosis, it may not be the only thing that is going on for you because oftentimes I think when you go in knowing and I imagine this would be the same in, in PCOS. I know that to be true. Then we just don't look for anything else. We don't look at the thyroid. We don't look at sperm. We don't, it's just like we stop. It's like, oh, hello. <laughs> People can have more than one thing. So I'm not that I wish that for you, but it's important to, to not just assume that that is the everything of your story. Oh, I say that all the time when someone, you know, it's almost like you're, you're almost relieved when you get a diagnosis. Cause it's like, Oh, this is the problem. I have PCOS. This is what's causing mm -hmm. my fertility issues. Um, and it, it really spans all of, all of the diagnoses. I mean, thyroid mm -hmm. disorders are much more common in that population. Um, just because you have PCOS does not mean that your partner's sperm is okay. Um, and a lot of times I'll get someone who will have PCOS, but you know, maybe they're not having regular cycles, but when they do have periods, they're horrible. They're painful, heavy. And I'm like, okay, well maybe, maybe you also have endometriosis or fibroids and just haven't been diagnosed with that yet. But, you know, there's really that almost relief that you've gotten a diagnosis and you kind of stop there and focus mm. all of your efforts on that one thing. So again, women's health is complicated. So, you know, you're looking at the person as a, as a whole and not mm -hmm. as a diagnosis of endometriosis when you're working with them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We can't have our blinkers on. We have to, you know, always be scanning and make sure that we're not missing something else. As a dietitian working exclusively in women's health, I encourage all of my clients to track their cycles and their symptoms, whether they're trying to conceive or not, because knowledge is power. And I not only recommend TempDrop, but I also use it myself. TempDrop gives you everything you need to effortlessly track your fertility. Wear the TempDrop sensor while you sleep for accurate basal body temperature readings without the stress of early morning wake-ups or having to remember to track at the same time every day. TempDrop's charting app also allows you to chart signs and symptoms in addition to your BBT, including cervical mucus and ovulation tests. Combine these fertility signs all in one place to identify your fertile window, confirm ovulation, plan for your period, or identify pregnancy. Whether you are trying to conceive, are avoiding pregnancy, or want to chart for health reasons, TempDrop makes fertility awareness accessible to all women, even if you don't have regular cycles or sleeping patterns. Identify your fertile window in real time with TempDrop. 
With TempDrop, know your cycle, understand your body. TempDrop has generously offered my listeners 15% off of the TempDrop kit with the code Hormone Dietitian Podcast. Visit tempdrop.com or use the link in the show notes to access the discount. Back to the episode. Yeah, so with endometriosis, are there any kind of basic principles of, of a you know supportive diet and lifestyle? Yeah, I think the the one that I find is most universally applicable um, is a general anti-inflammatory style of diet. Um, And I say that in the sense of diet as in a long-term way of eating, not as in a six-week challenge. Um, So I think that's universally a great place to start when you have endometriosis. People with endometriosis are much more likely to have food intolerances, um, have noticed that things set them off that are unique to them. Um, They're also more likely to have irritable bowel syndrome, which come along with this own set of food intolerances. And then people also have their own, their own, you know, discoveries of um, what works for them, what doesn't. That doesn't necessarily mean it aligns perfectly with the evidence, but which is limited. But my point is, is, you know, this this anti-inflammatory dietary principles, which I'll, I'll talk through, are generally universally applicable. Everything after that, estrogen and guard and all this other stuff, I tend to find is just a little bit too individual and it can either be a swing and a miss. <laughs> it can either be really helpful or really, you know, stir things up for people. So um, too, too individualized. Anti-inflammatory nutrition, we want to be focusing on um, increasing two main groups of things, antioxidants and omega-3 fatty acids. So antioxidants are dominantly found in our fruits and vegetables, and we try and get people to aim for lots of colour there so they're getting a good range of the different types of antioxidants, which each of which are going to have a different job in helping to lower reactive oxygen species, which are quote-unquote free radicals, which can do damage to our cells and our eggs. But also we know that people with endometriosis have higher levels of ROS, particularly in the pelvis. So they've actually done studies on that superfluid that I was referring to earlier, and they're showing that there's just more inflammation, more reactive oxygen species. So a high level of antioxidants is certainly not going to be harmful. So fruits, vegetables, good quality extra virgin olive oil and herbs and spices are kind of my mainstay things that I like to focus on. And then people often go, oh my gosh, this is so simple. Like what a complex disease, but why the intervention so simple if you're doing that as foundationally really well and consistently it makes a big difference over the span of a week a month a year multiple years in which you're going to have this disease the other element is the omega-3 fatty acids so they're dominantly found in your oily fish species so salmon ocean trout mackerel, sardines, and anchovies. Whilst there are plant-based sources of omega-3s in your chia seeds, walnuts, hemp seeds, the conversion of that ALA form of omega-3s is almost abysmal, really, into the (laughs) long-chain ones that we really want that are going to do the groundwork for us for for that EPA and DHA work that needs to be done. So we want to be focusing on the fish and or potentially supplementation as well. Obviously not universally true for everyone needs a 
omega-3 supplement, but um, it's certainly a high priority one that you want to be having a conversation with with your healthcare provider about. Um, there's a number of reasons why omega-3 fatty acids are really important for people with endometriosis, one of which is inflammation and trying to correct that omega-3, omega-6 ratio, which I almost always find is the wrong way around for most people. Same, same. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's just an artifact of the society and food system that we now live in. But it also has other benefits, one of which is um, egg quality for your current and or future fertility and preserving your ovarian reserve a little bit longer. So that's always positive. So even if you're not thinking about children soon, um, it can be helpful for your future self um, or just having the option. And the other component of it is the way it modifies the types of prostaglandins, which are chemical messengers that your body starts to make in preparation for your period which contracts those smooth muscles like the uterus, but often it misfires and the bowel and the bladder are also involved. Hello, period poops. And so we get this, those more intense um, uterine cramping and contractions. Prostaglandin synthesis being off is one of the kind of hallmarks of, of um, endometriosis um, pathology, but it's often not talked about all that much. But omega-3s can have a really big impact because they help make more of the anti-inflammatory prostaglandins, which help block the not-so-fun ones. It kind of just helps that whole picture. So certainly we want to be focusing on those things. And then on the on the flip side, I hate talking about it, but there are some things that you just want to be mindful of. It's the things that we know are, are not all that supportive yeah. of our health. You know, we know it when we're eating yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, alcohol, probably not the best one, you know, not having too many saturated fats, your processed meats, ham, you know, deli meats and high fat cuts of meat and ghee and butter and coconut oil and like excess amounts of those things from an inflammation perspective isn't going to be helpful. And certainly trans fats are like, Oh, we really, really want to avoid the artificially produced trans fats and typically found in our more deep fried foods. I'm very lucky in Australia, our government is very on top of trans fats here. So um, a lot of our food supply is already regulated for it, but it's usually when dining out that you're going to come into contact with them. It's, but they're a big no-no for endo. It's, it's similar here. It, they've oh, mostly right. been taken out of the food supply now. Um, they still lurk in some some you know, on the shelf, baked goods, things like donuts and cookies yeah. and things like that. Um, but, you know, but margarine at least is mm. no longer the health food that it was once considered for sure. Yes. You, men you mentioned one of my favorites too. And I, I don't see a lot of people talking about the use of herbs and spices, um, but they're such a potent way of adding antioxidants and anti-inflammatory compounds, you know, particularly mm. spices like ginger and turmeric, um, yep. but all, all the green leafy spice uh, herbs too. They just add that freshness and they're very um, high in antioxidants. Yeah. I think they're so underrated. I mean, I come from a Mediterranean background, so there is no food that or meal that is untouched by a herbal spice. Like my avocado toast has herbs on it every day. Mm -hmm. There's just it just has to be that way. <laughs> um, so I mean, it comes naturally to me personally, but I know a lot of people. The only thing in their spice drawer is salt. 
Um, and it doesn't always need to be fresh either. It can be dried that can have just as much of a potent impact when it comes to antioxidant level. And there's a really good little equivalence that I always give to my clients, which is just a quarter teaspoon of some dried thyme or dried oregano. Either of those are pretty interchangeable. It's the same as eating about half a cup of sweet potato. Just in terms of volume, that's huge. And it's worth like a dollar. <laughs> When you pick it up at the supermarket, it's so it's such a cheap way to boost flavor and also antioxidants with, you know, it just goes so far. I think that it's so, so underrated. I could talk about it all day. I absolutely love herbs and spices. But, yes, there's some specific evidence around ginger for period pain um, and nausea, which a lot of people with endometriosis experience, whether that is due to the endometriosis itself or secondary to the pain with bit confused um unsurprising um that we're confused about these things and uh, turmeric has been shown in some cell studies to kind of help kill endometriotic cells uh whether it's having that impact inside the body we're not yet quite sure but it's certainly not going to hurt to add some turmeric into your scrambled eggs your rice add it on your cauliflower make a curry etc all those things are going to certainly not be harmful when it comes to um, incorporating it into an anti-inflammatory diet. Yeah, I think, you know, it's important to remember that an anti-inflammatory diet doesn't mean plain, boring, steamed chicken and broccoli and brown rice. Like that's a very boring way of eating and nobody is likely to stick with that for any length no. of time, but spice, spice that chicken up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think that color that color method is is so so much what my clients hang on to long term is focusing on just getting in a few different colors it's visually appealing it creates variety you get less bored um, with the whole eating scenario and yeah absolutely there's so much you can do there's so many combinations um, it's just about improving your confidence in kind of piecing together meals like that and it's not about being perfect either you know not one single food or snack or meal or cookie is going to create your body bursting into flames of inflammation it doesn't really work that immediately although you may be getting a different type of reaction that's creating some immediate pain or symptom that's different um so i think it's really important for people to realize it's it's about what you're doing most of the time um, and it's not about a single food or a single ingredient being significantly better than others. Certainly this the group of foods that we should be focusing more on, but, you know, I get in my DMs, is almond milk inflammatory? I'm like, oh, well, I don't know. I don't know what else you're eating. Like if you're eating McDonald's all day and then you're having almond milk, it might be the best part of your day. I don't know. Like I can't ask you that. So I don't know. And I think we need to get away from this like, single grain of sand mentality, zoom out, look at the whole beach. If the beach looks good, happy days, moving on, you know. I, I love that beach, beach allegory, Australia. Yes. Now you're making me wish I were there. <laughs> it's currently <laughs> raining and looks very doom and gloom. So it's oh, not, it's not all sunshine and roses here in Australia, despite, despite what the tourism ads tell you. <laughs> Oh, no. So you've already kind of alluded to this a little bit, but mm. do you, are there any foods across the board that people need to eliminate if they have 
endometriosis. I know like, for example, dairy, I hear a lot, just avoid Mm. dairy, cut dairy out. But then there actually are some studies that dairy can be beneficial, but Mm. then it's also depends on your individual reaction to dairy, right? Absolutely. Dairy is the latest one because a new, well, not new study, but new data from an older study was published with a particular focus on dairy and endometriosis risk. So you'll see a lot of research if you start reading into any of this is about the the risk of developing endometriosis. Now, to somebody like myself who already has this diagnosis, you might think, oh, why should I care about endometriosis risk? I already got this silly disease why do I want to know my risk of developing it because this is important because what is likely to help prevent or cause or you know contribute to the cause of the disease or the risk of you developing it is also going to be part of the recurrence of the disease and the I guess the intensity of symptoms sometimes with that disease. So it is important to be looking at this research if you have already been diagnosed. And one of the studies looked at dairy intake and the risk of developing endometriosis. And they showed that people that were consuming three servings or more of dairy per day were significantly less likely to develop endometriosis. The first question everyone goes, well, why? It's a, it's a causative factor. We don't quite yet know what the association is. It's suspected it's due to the calcium and vitamin D content, which may have a beneficial effect. However, big caveat, that is independent of your own personal response to dairy if you drink milk and you're in the toilet two minutes later with violent diarrhea don't drink milk that's not for you simple (laughs) if you have lactose intolerance and you know it you can work around that keep the dairy in go lactose free for example get the benefits of it without the painful symptoms and i see a lot of clients that have other dairy related intolerances that aren't lactose And, you know, we're able to keep some of it in. Now, if you're choosing not to drink dairy for other reasons, such as ethical preferences or just your general taste preference, that's a completely different story. And I'm never here to force something down someone's throat if you really don't enjoy it because that's just not sustainable, is it? Um, So we can work around all those things. But we shouldn't go, oh, I have endometriosis, therefore dairy-free diet. That's, that's what I'm trying to debunk is it shouldn't be an automatic thing. And in fact, when I got diagnosed, even though I was fully trained, I was a dietitian working in this field, I almost felt obligated to change my diet, even though I knew nothing really my diet was setting me off. Now I know my, my triggers a little bit better, but none of them are dairy or gluten or soy or sugar. None of those things. It's alcohol and deep fried food, which I mean, Surprise, surprise. Is that really groundbreaking information for most people? Probably not. But that's what sets me off personally. For other people, you know, a a bean or a legume could set them off, sadly. But that could be their personal trigger. So it's about finding your unique path. Yes, you need to be cognizant of the evidence, but also it may not always be universally applicable to you because endometriosis is already such a heterogeneous disease. Yeah, as someone who is allergic to casein, um, I completely agree with you in terms of, 
you know, there's no need to throw an entire category of foods away just because you're reacting to a specific part. You know, some of my lactose intolerant folks do great with lactose-free cheese like cheddar cheese. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, um, I can't have cheese. I can't have yogurt. It makes me very sad. I miss it desperately every day, but I can get away with a little bit of butter, you know, for flavor or in a Mm. dessert I can get away with, and it doesn't cause symptoms for me. So, you know, it's really not about an all or nothing approach. It's like, well, what, what can we do? Maybe, maybe you can tolerate a little bit of yogurt, um, if you don't do well with cheese or milk, you know, everybody's individual. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the goal is always maximum flexibility and minimum symptom. That's what we want. We don't want to throw, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like we need to go down and dissect what element of it are you, are we suspecting you are responding to negatively and can we work around that? In some instances, it's not going to be workaroundable. And in other instances, it will. But let's try. Yes, I do want to talk about one specific diet where there is some evidence um, for endometriosis. And it actually hails from your part of the world, Monash mm. University. Um, the low FODMAP diet, um, there have been some studies that following a low FODMAP diet can improve symptoms of endometriosis. I know I have some issues with using the low FODMAP diet as a a lifestyle. Um, I know that's not how the researchers ever intended it to be used. Um, What are your thoughts around the FODMAP? Is it something that you try for the short term with people or do you find that it's really just too regimented for most folks. I I guess I have a bit of a different relationship with the low FODMAP diet because I was misdiagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome first and so I self-managed with a low FODMAP diet and had some decent success. At the time, I thought I just had IBS. Um, but everything did settle with it and I thought, wow, this is the solution. Just don't eat a cauliflower and she'll be right. But... But, but I think sometimes I can also cloud the picture. So I think if you know you have a diagnosis of endometriosis and it's been treated medically appropriately, that's number one, if, if that's the path you choose to go down. And if you remain to have significant bowel concerns that are impacting your daily life, whether it be constipation, diarrhea, alternating, bloating, gas, etc. If you still fit the bill of IBS after appropriate medical intervention on the endometriosis and those are significant symptoms that are impacting your day, day-to-day life and you have the ability and resources to consider a low FODMAP diet, as in you're going to be able to work with the dietitian, you're able to control the shopping and cooking scenario in your house, etc. It's It's a consideration. What I'm finding, I used to use it a lot more in my practice because there are some good studies saying 50 to 75% relief of symptoms and who doesn't love a stat like that. But it's it's a secondary relief because there's less pressure within the bowel. There's less pressure within the bowel. You've got less kind of general pressure in that cavity where other things that aren't meant to be there, aka endometriosis, occupying. So you've got less kind of pain. The thing about endometriosis and IBS, they do have a lot in common in the sense that creates a hypersensitivity of of the visceral nerves 
Um, and that just means they are firing at a lower threshold. So it takes less to, to feel the pain in this abdominal region. It does not mean you have a lower pain threshold. I hate, I hate, I hate that uh, discourse in um, the community of endometriosis. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that actual the nerve endings that innovate your insides are more likely to be set off at a lower threshold of gas, fluid, gastric contents, etc. And both endometriosis and IBS have that in common. So yes, it can be really helpful. It is not a long-term solution. And I'm finding in most instances. If you have good awareness of the timing of your symptoms in relation to your food and other lifestyle factors, i.e. stress, exercise, sleep, medication, supplementation, um, meal routine, etc., caffeine, alcohol, all those factors, if you've got really good insight, I often find you can get a dietitian to you can pinpoint one or two or three things and try it that way instead of having to do the full protocol. Full protocol is great if everything's a mess and you're like, I'm just constantly, you know, off, off the rails with the bloating and the constipation of the diet. I, like, I don't know, up from down. Okay, well, we're going to have to come back to baseline. We're going to have to find out what's going on. I think I've gotten a lot better over the years at picking which path for who. I can't really define it as an algorithm to like put it out there I guess that's why we probably won't be replaced by artificial intelligence anytime soon but <laughs> but my point is is there are ways around it it's not a universal option for everybody and I think there's lots of things that we need to try before we get to the low FODMAP diet we need to there's some low-hanging fruit that people just miss and I just go oh my gosh it's just not necessary um and a lot of people feel 100% better on the low-hanging fruit and then we never have to go down that path and that's okay. And I always say to people, you don't need to do the most, you know. you do. It's not a competition of who's restricting the diet the most, who's trying the hardest with their diet to kind of win, quote-unquote, win this endometriosis game. Nobody's out here doing that. We want to do the least and get the most. That's what we want. We want the most efficient way out of, of these symptoms if possible. So, I think sometimes, again, we feel this obligation and pressure when you have a chronic condition to be doing the absolute most. I've done it. I think it's doable. Do I think everyone is, you know, equipped to do it? Solo? Certainly not. Even with a dietitian, I do find some people just really, really struggle. You know, people that have histories of eating disorders, disordered eating, red flag, never touch it. Um but there are some people that find a lot of benefit from it. And the thing is, you do need to move through the phases. You do need to get to that personalization stage. And you need to have a check-in at that point, at that end of that initial two to six-week phase where you're substituting those high FODMAP foods for low FODMAP foods, where we're having a conversation of how much better do you feel? Because if we are doing this level of restriction for 2% better, I mean, it's up to you, sister, but I don't know. That wouldn't be for me. I want like 50% plus improvement for me to progress to the next stage. And if I'm not getting that result, I'm really probably not that invested to continue. And that's when you stop and you find other options. Um, so, yes, there is clinical evidence. It's useful. Yes, it can be the right thing for some people. It can be an absolute train wreck for others. 
the, the train wreck scenarios I tend to find is when people attempt it on, on their own or just like from a handout from their doc, well-meaning doctor, um, which is like a single two-sided A4 page and, you know, see so yeah, that's the low FODMAP diet. If it were that simple, there wouldn't be whole like courses on it and, you know, apps built for the low FODMAP diet. It's not, it's not that simple. But, yeah, it's a combination of you know, finding triggers, they may or may not be FODMAP triggers. Um, but I think you need to look at the whole lifestyle, just like any kind of gut, functional gut disorder. You can't just go, oh, it's what you're eating and that's it. There's so many other factors at play. Yeah, I think, you know, the low FODMAP diet is super effective. Like if it's going to work, it's going to work fast. Like you are going to feel almost immediate symptom relief within the first couple of days, within, you know, the first week, you're going to feel like a whole new person if it's going to work for you. But I love how you, you framed it, that you don't have to do the most. And when you're working with a dietitian and we're looking at the types of things that you're eating all the time, if the majority of the foods that you're eating are high FODMAP foods, you know, especially with the popularity of cauliflower these days, you know, I've had so many people eating cups and cups of cauliflower rice with breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And it's like, no wonder you're bloated and gassy. Like, why don't we swap some of that for something low FODMAP, like zucchini or courgette, right? Courgette in yeah. Australia. And, um, you know, just sort of take some of that load off of your gut a little bit without having to follow a strict diet. Yeah. Absolutely. And sometimes it just takes someone with that third person view and that expertise in food and nutrition to pick out those, those ones. The other one I see all the time is sweet potato. People just eat buckets of sweet potato because white potato is the absolute devil, apparently. And then they're like, oh, why do I feel rubbish all the time? It's like, well, you know, it, it, that's just, we're just honing in on one or two things. It may, may not be any of those things for you, but just as some examples of like, we're able to pick things out and also the timing in which the symptom occurs to when that food was consumed is super, super valuable information um, for trying to work it out backwards um, and going, going the fastest route possible. Yeah. Really, real quickly, I, I do mm. want to touch on lifestyle a little bit because you had, mm. you had alluded to it when you were talking about eating because sometimes it's not actually what you're eating, it's how you're eating, you know, whether mm -hmm. you're not chewing your foods or you're rushing or you're, you know, eating on the go, things like that can make um, a difference when it comes to digestion and absorption and symptoms. What are some mm -hmm. of the other lifestyle factors that might have a negative impact on endometriosis or the reverse side? What are some lifestyle factors that might have a positive in influence? Yeah, I um I think the universal one that I can hand on heart say is probably something that almost everyone with any kind of reproductive health concern slash the whole population should be thinking about more is endocrine disrupting chemicals mm. and reducing the those in our worlds, whether that be food containers, whether that be your water bottle or your coffee cup. Um food packaging, all those things, even if it is BPA-free, doesn't mean it's endocrine-disrupting, chemical-free. Um, and we know that one of the potential triggers, whether that be epigenetic or not, we don't yet know, but one of the potential theories around endometriosis, and particularly why we're seeing a huge 
um, spike is potentially because of endocrine disrupting chemicals and there's an estrogenic effect um, and that has having downstream effects to the development of endometriosis. So I would say universally we want to try to focus on reducing. Again, it's not about perfection. Like I still won't give up some endocrine disrupting chemical packed things because I'm just like... I'm just not willing to go natural on this thing. That's okay. <laughs> but things like having a glass container to heat up your lunch in um, and trying to just be mindful of those things and try to minimise your interaction with those things. If you, if you have zero idea what we're talking about here, I'm not sure if you have another podcast episode on it, um, Melissa, but there's lots of great resources available about EDCs where you can find out more. So I would say certainly that's one thing that universally everyone should be thinking about. Um, I think the other components, there are hit and a miss, and I think there's a lot of myths as well. So exercise is one where people say, oh, just exercise and it'll help with your endometriosis. Somebody who's crippled in bed in pain who can't get up to pick up the package from the front door is not going to be able to have the physical capacity and resources to exercise to, to help them with their endometriosis. And for some people, and I have worked with elite athletes who have endometriosis, the level of intensity of the exercise can in and of itself be a trigger for some people, whilst for others, it can kind of almost distract the nervous system from the pain and be helpful. So we yet to really understand about the impact of whether low intensity, moderate intensity or high intensity is best for endometriosis. Again, it's individual. So I, I think it's really tricky. And the same with stress because chicken or the egg, are we stressed because we have a disease that has no cure, no cause, we're being gaslit by the medical community all the time and we might not be able to have children even though we really want them? That could be a little bit stressful. Or And the pain that we experience is inter interfering with our relationship, our work, our schooling, everything. Um, so that can create stress in and of itself or is stress exacerbating endometriosis? I mean, chicken and the egg scenario. So that's really tricky as well. Um, great sleep is never going to hurt anybody. Um, and certainly when you're feeling fatigued, you know, adequate rest is, is really, really important. Um, even if you feel like you're all rested out, sometimes it's just really important to give yourself that grace. So I think it's tricky to really um, give a universal solution in that sphere um some things people will resonate with some people will be like no nah, that's not for me and that's totally cool um and then of course you can look at things like a targeted supplementation plan with your healthcare provider that can that can make a real big difference i'm all about food first but there is a lot of research that's emerging in the supplementation sphere and there is just zero way that you can hit those kinds of levels of antioxidants, proteins, nutrients, minerals, etc., um, through diet alone. So, um, or a, hell of a balanced diet alone. Um, you could try, but it wouldn't be a very balanced diet. So I would say that that, you know, that's your cherry on top. Um, you need to be doing the fundamentals first. Otherwise, you know, this is just pouring money down the drain, really. Yeah, I love, you know, the food first approach because we can get most nutrients from food. But I think you know, something like resveratrol, which, you know, has shown some promise in endometriosis. Mm. We don't want to encourage anyone to go out and drink a liter of red wine a night in order to get the, 
necessary resveratrol. So there are places where supplements can, you know, fill a gap that we're not willing or able to meet in our diets. Um, also for some people, there are some people out there, I'm not one of them, but people who just don't like seafood or don't like fish or don't want to incorporate it in their diet. Um, for sure. What would you say would be one thing that you would want people with endometriosis to take away from this episode? Oh, that's a tricky one, Melissa. Okay. (laughs) I would say find your people. So whether that be your community of people that are going through the same thing online or offline, um, find your medical person, find your dietitian, find your acupuncturist, find your psychologist, find your pelvic physiotherapist. Like you don't you may need one or all of those people in your treatment team. But once you find your people, it just makes everything so much smoother. People that understand endometriosis, not just any old pelvic physio or any old acupuncturist, like people that actually have a genuine interest and research this disease because it is complicated and it is exhausting being on the patient side to constantly need to explain what your disease is and how it affects you. It is just ease when you can walk in or sign into a consultation and somebody already knows the profile of things that you're going through and can just jump in right where you are and help you at that point rather than needing to educate them on it. So find your people. You might not need them 24-7 slash, you know, all the time, but I find most of my clients bounce off me in in and out as they need. You know, they work with me for an initial period of time and then they might come in and out over a period of two, three, four years at different intervals, depending on what's going on for them, what's changed, what they need to refine and their goals. Um, so find your people because then it's so much easier. It's just, just less friction, so much nicer. Yes. On that note, Steph is a wonderful resource to follow if you have endometriosis or if you're just interested in women's health, um, nutrition and prenatal fertility nutrition topics. You share a ton of great information on your Instagram. You also have a website with lots of great info. So can you tell people where they can find you? Yes. So we have two Instagram pages. We have at the underscore dietologist, which is our fertility, prenatal, general reproductive health nutrition page. And then because I wasn't, you know, I was a sucker for punishment, I started a second account to focus on endometriosis. It's called endo.dietitian. And you can find me there and I just share exclusively content about endometriosis there. And our website is thedietologist.com.au and we have over 100 evidence-based articles that you can search there and lots of free resources 
Um, and of course, my podcast, Fertility Friendly Food, if you like bite-sized little episodes about fertility and reproductive health nutrition, and I do little mini-series on different um, health conditions and concerns. So yeah, if you have a specific uh, request, I'm always open to ideas. So do slide into my DMs. So thank you so much for having me, Melissa. I hope I've covered all the different ways that people can find me. They're the main ones. <laughs> I won't throw my TikTok out there or anything like that. <laughs> That's been wonderful. I did also want to mention, because um, just, you know, stocking your website a little bit, and especially for the folks in the U.S., um, you have a lot of, you know, sort of low, medium priced offers, meal plans and resource yep. guides and things like that on your website that are fantastic resources. So definitely check out her shop page while you are there because she's got a ton of great stuff there. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank and you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to having you on Fertility Friendly Food. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, stay balanced. Stay balanced.